Talking Point with Sarah Carey on News Talk 106 to 108. It's Pregnancy and Infant Loss Remembrance Day, so we're going to talk about miscarriage this morning. It's a remarkably common event, yet leaves many women with confusing feelings about what exactly has been lost. In Ireland particularly, we've travelled a long way from nighttime burials of unbaptized babies in unconsecrated ground and a harshly pragmatic approach to a more enlightened understanding of the loss. Miscarriage is our talking point this morning and in studio, Gina Whelan is a cranial osteopath, mother of two and she's had three miscarriages herself. Professor Anthony McCarthy is a psychiatrist in Hollis Street and Dr Jennifer Donnelly is a consultant in obstetrics and gynaecology at the Rotunda. Later in the show, we'll be joined by folklorist Roisin Tuhi, who writes about folklore on the Random Descent blog, and Father Michael Cusack, a redemptorist priest in Dundalk. If you want to text us, uh, 53106 for 30 cent is our text line, and at Talking Point NT and hashtag NTFM for your tweets. Um, Dr. Jennifer Donnelly, if I could start with you. How common is miscarriage? Good morning. Yes, it's actually very common. About one woman in five who gets pregnant will have a first trimester miscarriage. That is a pregnancy loss before 12 weeks of pregnancy. Um, And so that's of of all ages. Um, That number can increase the older that a woman gets. So in her 40s, it can be as high as one in three or one in four. Um, And after 12 weeks, up until 24 weeks, it's less common, but about about one in 200 women will experience a loss after 12 weeks. So obviously that's much less common and miscarriage in the first trimester is seen even more frequently now that we have early home pregnancy tests that can often tell a woman that she's pregnant before she's even missed her period. So maybe previously, if she didn't know she was pregnant, she might not have even realised that, you know, she might just think it was a late period or something like that. Exactly. And so although I've quoted the figure of one in five, it's probably higher than that, given early pregnancy loss before the missed period hasn't been recognised. And now that... um, age of 24 weeks Mm -hmm. what's the legal definition then of what happens if you lose a baby after that? So I says 24 weeks after 24 weeks any baby born after 24 weeks or weighing more than 500 grams would be not classified as a miscarriage but as a stillbirth and can be registered as such whereas before 24 weeks it would be a pregnancy loss would be considered a miscarriage. Okay so there'd be no legal recording of a birth as such or a death it would you know be called the miscarriage exactly I mean there's no legal death certificate as there would be with a with a um, with a stillbirth however I mean it would be recorded obviously depending on what the woman wanted and in her medical notes in her own personal history and do we know why they happen well First trimester miscarriages, most commonly, about 60 to 70 percent of those are for genetic abnormalities. And these are non-recurring genetic abnormalities. So that doesn't mean that a woman is more likely to have a child with a genetic malformation or abnormality. But it it is the most recognised common cause. So there's really nothing that couples can do in order to prevent this from happening. So people often feel quite guilty about miscarriage. But in the vast majority of cases, it's totally outside of their control as to the cause. And obviously, there's about 30 percent where there are other causes but again they can be the pregnancy has failed to implant it may be related to intercurrent infection or other rarer causes. And um, and what about repeated miscarriages then? So overall if a person if a woman has one miscarriage her chance of having another miscarriage is not increased so that's often reassuring for women to hear that when they've had one pregnancy loss that it doesn't mean that they're going to have an, or that their risk of miscarriage has increased. However, obviously as Gina's experienced, someone will have more um, than one or two miscarriages and, even, and when that occurs, more than th- three miscarriages or more, that would be considered recurrent 
miscarriage. And there are much there are in certain cases we can find out what the underlying cause is but even in a case of a, of a woman who undergoes recurrent miscarriage we still don't uh, find a reason for that in more than 70% of cases. So Gina do you want to tell me a little bit about your experience then what happened to you? Sure hi Sarah um, well I I actually my first pregnancy was amazing I had a really gorgeous healthy boy and I thought I was superwoman to be quite honest with you um, I had him at home as well which was even more special for me uh, when I got pregnant the second time I thought it was going to be like that so uh, I was working I was joyful I was making plans uh, all of those things that you do when you're pregnant and at uh, nine weeks I started to bleed and even at that point I thought well that happens you know it's not unusual Uh, I took it easy and uh, rested up and um, I got in touch with my the domiciliary midwife who's looking after me at the time and Kelly and uh, she said look you might think about going for an ultrasound so um, I made an appointment in Hollis Street and we went in myself and my husband and uh, we had the ultrasound and I mean it just all felt so real or surreal at that point to be honest with you I just kept on asking the question what's going on what's going on it was all a bit mental and you know uh, Shay was fantastic my husband I mean he was absolutely amazing he was a rock Um, but even still I was just all over the shop and when they told me that the baby was uh, the size of seven weeks. It didn't register. I, you know, I was like, okay, fine. And, uh, and sadly, there's no heartbeat. And honestly, that moment was life altering. That's the only way I can describe it. I came out of the hospital in shock. I had no idea, you know, how to how to move on from there. It was really moment to moment after that. And um, I went home and my mom came up and she moved in. God bless her. And I got incredible support there. And lots of people around uh, the neighborhood were amazing. And my midwife was incredible. And like you're saying, Jennifer, you know, just reassuring me mm-hmm. about all the statistics and that mm-hmm. I was OK and I'm healthy those things were so important for me to know and um, but then you had two more I had two more so were they different I would say so Um, I think after the first one I felt okay so I've been through this I, I know what resources are available I can you know pull in those resources and I can start making sure that I have the support required to move on and and heal because it is a healing process, you know, uh, when something like this happens. And, uh, you know, so for the second time, I felt more um, capable of dealing with it. (coughs) Excuse me. Um, And then, you know, my fourth pregnancy, I had two miscarriages at the point. My fourth pregnancy, I went on to have another gorgeous, wonderful, healthy boy who's 14 now. We just Mm -hmm. celebrated his birthday. And um, I then after that thought I was in my 40s, actually, at this point, And I thought, you know, what? I think I'd really like another. And uh, at that point, I had my third and I thought, you know what, 
I think it's time. (laughs) (laughs) So Anthony McCarthy, you know, nine weeks, a lot of people might think, well, that's early enough in a pregnancy. And I suppose when you see women, you're seeing them because they're having difficulty dealing with it. Yes. Um, What kind of feelings are they having trouble with when they come to you? Um, I liked the way uh, Jeannie used the word surreal. Because the real question, I suppose, for a mother at that stage is, is emotionally what's real? There's a huge difference between what physically, medically, obstetrically may be the reality and emotionally what's the reality for the mother um, and how she may be feeling. And you say nine weeks, the weeks don't matter. I mean, there's loads of research sort of saying, do women get more distressed, more grief, re- grief reactions if it's 16 weeks versus 14 weeks versus eight mm-hmm. weeks? That's kind of measuring in some sort of objective way. It's never about that. Or almost never. What it is about is, what, well, one, what was she hoping for? What did she want from the pregnancy? Because to be truthful, there are some women who, where the miscarriage is a huge relief. To those who have you know, begun to engage with it, um, but they have an early bleed uh, or bleed even at 12 or 13 weeks and really they haven't got their mind around it yet. Mm. Or um, they're very uh, practical about it and they're told the statistics and they're told that it may have been a genetic abnormality or this was nature's way, God's way, whatever it might be. And it only felt like a heavy period. And yes, it's upsetting for a day or two and, and it's OK. For others, and, and Gina described, you know, this life changing moment because of her expectations, how much she had invested already in what it was that was growing inside her. And that's the key, what it was that's growing inside her. So I you may see a mother at at 12 weeks where it's, you know, she's she's fine, she's upset, it's, 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 but she gets on with it very quickly. I'll have another mother, maybe it might be seven or eight weeks. And then I'm um, thinking of somebody particularly recently uh, and, and the night she went to bed one night, she was thinking she was pregnant um, and she woke up in the middle of the night, but she'd been having a nightmare. And in the nightmare, there was this absolutely perfect little blonde haired boy on a slab of marble and she saw him and she went over to kiss him on the forehead and he was frozen. And at that moment, she woke up and at that moment she was bleeding. Oh, my God. So for her, that's what she's lost and that's what we're dealing with. What she's dealing with. Mm. And that's a totally different experience um, where someone else will have again invested hugely in it and she'll come in and maybe the, she'll have her, the ultrasound and she may get a, it's not a deliberately careless phrase, but, you know, I'm afraid there's only an empty sack there. Yeah. And that sort of, the wording <laughs> can be so, again, for oh. some reassuring, for someone else it feels so <coughs> cold. What does that mean? Um, and that can go all the way to even much more complex ones where there's, uh, situations where her mother may have, a, for example, a molar pregnancy, where what she's lost is mostly placenta. Maybe there was a little bit of baby in it or not. And mm. she won't even know. I've had mothers say to me, um, I don't know whether I can celebrate Mother's Day because that's been my only obstetric experience. And, you know, I was told it was an empty sack, but I'm 44. I'm never going to have you pregnant again. Was I a mother at all? So there's all of these different questions. And the fundamental thing is, subjectively for the mother, what is it that she feels she's lost? And she's not going to necessarily know that immediately either, because it is surreal. It may be a shock and it may take her days, hours, days, weeks, months, a long time to process what it is that she thinks she may have lost. 
Um, Jennifer Donnelly, a lot of people do mention that the staff in the hospitals and sometimes it might be pragmatic, but come across as cold. What are the guidelines now around dealing with parents when they're getting that bad news? I think, I mean, as um, Anthony McCarthy said, it's very important that the language that we use is is sensitive um, to the woman and her, and her circumstances and that some language may not be acceptable to women. And that's something that in the guidelines and in training, um, both doctors and midwives to deal with pregnancy loss, the language that's used is highlighted in that. There are recent guidelines published by the, Obstet- the Institute of Obstetricians and Gynaecologists um, which specifically discuss that and terminology around miscarriage has changed a lot in the last 20 years and so a lot, um, which is also highlighted in the recent um, bereavement care standards published by the HSE, the importance of communication um, because there are many stories over the years of women coming in and having felt that they were dealt with in a in an uncaring way or that a, a chance phrase such as, you know, it's nature's way really has not helped them at all get over that. And so I think in terms of guidelines and standards, that's something that's been very much focused on over the last number of years and the importance of using the correct language and to be sensitive. What is the correct language? What would you tell people to say? So I suppose w- when um, you mentioned an empty sack and so that classically would be a pregnancy that has developed, the, pr- the placenta has developed, the gestational sac has developed, but the fetus or the baby hasn't developed and isn't identifiable in ultrasound. And in the past, that might have been called, um, it, it, there were many other, many phrases to use. And now we, the guidelines would be to call it a silent miscarriage. It previously had been called a missed miscarriage, but some people <coughs> feel missed uh, seems wrong. Um, and so a silent miscarriage, because often that's what it is, that women mm-hmm. feel pregnant, the, pl- the placenta is producing the pregnancy hormone hormones and so women come in for their scan 9, 10, 11 weeks expecting fully to see a baby there and in fact they don't and um, it's only the the, the the gestational sac that is there um, and that can be, it's very important to recognise that that is a pregnancy because some women ask then so was I not pregnant and absolutely yeah. they are pregnant. Um, Anthony mentioned there are molar pregnancy and I know mm-hmm. someone who had one of those. They're awful things. Just will explain to people what that so, is because I'd never heard of it until yeah. this happened. So a molar pregnancy year. is a much rarer uh, phenomenon. It's about one in kind of 600 to 1,000 and it's where the placenta develops abnormally. Um, and so the in the vast majority of cases, there is no fetus or no fetal tissue present in the pregnancy and the placenta develops abnormally. And um, it, there's impo- it's important to have follow up of that because Occasionally, the placental tissue can persist and further treatment yeah, is required. It can still keep growing. That's right, yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So what's the treatment for that? Well, oftentimes it's just as with straightforward miscarriages, um, it, what's called a DNC or an ERPC emptying of the uterus. But it is important that there is follow up because the pregnancy hormone can persist and further treatment with medication can be required. Um, And actually, just on that. So another friend of mine, she had a miscarriage. And one thing that really upset her but I think it was the standard treatment was there was no DNC she went home and she was bleeding for a month yeah. and it was really traumatic just to this it was constant yeah. like she felt every single day this was draining away from her so what were, are the medical indicators for 
you know, doing something like a DNC and then not yeah. letting nature take its course. So absolutely. So there's a number of different um, parameters, medical parameters that you can offer um, that where there can be a choice offered to women, whether they want to manage the miscarriage, what would be called conservatively with no medical intervention or whether medical treatment is given. And usually the medical treatment is given for the woman to bring home in order for her to miscarry at home. And then the third option would be the, the DNC or ERPC, which would require hospital admission and a general anaesthetic. So not all pregnancies are not all pregnancy losses are suitable for each of those options. So it's very important that the pregnancy, the stage of the pregnancy and the features on ultrasound are taken into account, as well as the wishes of the mother. And that's very important because what is suitable for one person may not be suitable mm. for another woman. Mm. So for somebody, um, it may be very important for them to experience the miscarriage, to, to remember that. And for others, they just want to get it over and done mm. with, to put it behind them as soon as possible. And also they can be terrified be frightened about what that might involve and so a clear explanation of that providing written information to bring home and to consider and women also don't need to make a decision immediately in the vast majority of cases. Um, Gina just what Jennifer and I began talking about was yeah. the importance of language <coughs> what yeah. was your experience of that? Do you know I have to be honest with you once they said no heartbeat everything else kind of faded into the background. So I didn't really take much in after that point. Um, but and either and even Shay, who was focusing on me, really didn't hear a lot of what was being said. I suppose for me, it was much more the the presence of the um, person doing the scan. How she was with me was what it was the impression that I went away with. And, and how uh, was she with you? Well, she was wonderful clinically. She gave me facts. She was very, um, uh, the information was, was provided. However, there was this, as I say, clinical um, uh, attitude toward the whole situation that I felt really uh, unable to to relate to. Um, so I felt a little isolated in, in the experience. Now, it was a while, Jennifer, and obviously things have changed since then. But uh, and, and that's wonderful that I really am delighted to hear that. Um, but coming out of there, I, I felt a little like, oh, you know, what now? I, I didn't. There wasn't information given. I was asked if I wanted to have the uh, DNC. I it was clearly not interested in that. I Why wanted to not? go home. Um, because I guess at that point, I just desperately wanted to be with my my people who loved me, people who cared for me. And um, I knew that being at home was a safe place for me to be. Um, now, that could be very different for somebody else. For somebody else, a hospital can be the safe place, you know. Mm. So I just want to emphasize that. Mm. But for me... It was to be at home. It was to be in my own bed, in my own environment where I could walk around, have a cup of tea, talk to my family. My mother was there. My husband was there. My domiciliary midwife was there. She was very much available to me um, if I needed any um, reassurance from, from an obstetric point of view. And did you do that with the other two um, miscarriages as well, that... They, this, you, you, they bled away, did they? Yeah, it was like yeah. a period. Yeah. The first one was the most difficult because I had been further on. Um, even though they had said the pregnancy had stopped at seven, um, seven weeks, I was really surprised that I felt like I had a labour. 
I had contractions. I had a full on labour. And in some weird way, that was very satisfying to me. It was like, for me, it was like, okay, my body still works. Okay, I can still have a normal experience here, even though it was something that I hadn't You're nodding away there, Anthony. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I mean, I I just, again, on just Mm. the diversity of of experiences for you, that feeling that your body was working and um, you were having that felt powerful and wonderful for another that may be so traumatic. Yeah. um, That to feel that part of me is working, but but why then have I failed? Again, so much will depend on 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 the cause that that, that the woman attributes to to why why it's all happened. So some would be very reassured by the statistics and and the medical language and almost that that helps for someone else. She may be vaguely listening to that inside. She's thinking it's all my fault. I knew my body could never hold a baby. I think if a woman I saw a couple of years ago now who was talking about having been sexually abused as a child, but always believing it was still her fault. Mm. And she knew her body was dirty inside. And she knew once she had a miscarriage, she knew that was it. That was the sign. She was dirty inside still. And it had all been her fault. So and for her, you know, that was that was the key thing for someone else. And again, I, I don't see women routinely who are having miscarriages. It tends to come up. I see them as working as a psychiatrist and a therapist in the hospital it is often women who've developed maybe some depression or have had some mental health difficulty. And I'm seeing them in their next pregnancy uh, when they're pregnant again and retrospectively talking about what happened before. And that becomes um, so key. And there again, for you, you want uh, for, for Gina, she wanted to she wanted to go home and she wanted to do it at home for someone else delivering um, having the miscarriage at home and seeing a clot or seeing a little fetus. That must be very traumatic. If that happens at home and something comes out, mm-hmm. what is it? Exactly. And sometimes it's not clear what it is. And sometimes what does she do with it? Um, what have what have women done with I mean, it? I mean, I, you know, I can tell many stories, but I, you know, Ones that stay in my mind are women sort of catching it, looking at it, not knowing what it was, and then deciding to wrap it in tin foil and put it in a little, little cardboard box and deciding to go out. Before her partner came home, she went out, she was going to bury it in the garden. But then she woke up and then she went to sleep then, but she woke up an hour or two later and thinking a rook, a, a crow will get it, a fox will get it, and going out and digging it back up again and then putting it in her fridge. Yeah. Um, another woman putting it in her freezer unwrapped and putting it in there and then feeling horrific about that, but not knowing what to do with it. What is it? Um, what, do you, what do you think they should do with it? What would be a good thing to do with it? <laughs> I don't want to be prescriptive, but a lot of women I know have buried it in the garden. Yes. That's what they've done. Yes. Would that be? That's probably yeah. the commonest. Yeah. Um, some will just say, no, I just flushed it down the toilet. You know, that's what I did and that was OK. Yeah. For others, it's much more complicated. I know another woman who did that. She was just shocked and mm. she flushed it away and mm. she never forgave herself mm. for it. Mm. You know, it was just she would have done it differently. But in the moment, it was yeah. a panic. Now on the line is Roisin Tui. She's a folklorist and writes um, about uh, folklore um, on the Random Descent blog. Uh, good morning, Roisin. Hi, Sarah, how are you? Now, um, look, I think a lot of the old traditions that happened in Ireland were often to do with stillbirths and um, infant loss. Um, but can you tell me a little bit about those old traditions, things like Colleen's and burying at dusk? What was behind it all? So I suppose probably what's important to point out is that, um, as you say, miscarriage is still very common. Um, 
and it would have been even more common in the past due to the lack of medical knowledge and the fact that women generally had more pregnancies than they would now. Um, so the medical understanding would have been very vague. There would have been quite a big taboo um, in the distant past. They may have been seen as kind of unhappy spirits. Maybe they might bring bad luck to the family and stuff like that. So it is kind of important to note that there would have been a big taboo about it. And um, we're still pretty superstitious about pregnancy even now. Um, you know, it is, generally speaking, people don't tell um, the wider circle until they're about three months pregnant, just um, more out of kind of superstition than any medical reason now. Um, so, of course, um, the reason that uh, the cleans would have existed, they, these would have been unconsecrated burial sites because these babies couldn't be buried in consecrated ground because they hadn't been baptised. Um, so the reason that, that this would have occurred... Um, like the, there are Colleen's all over Ireland um, there's at least 1300 of them that are recorded there's probably more they wouldn't have been kind of marked there wouldn't have been gravestones there in kind of remote areas um, Did so, you say that um, sometimes the sites would have been picked because they might be near fairy forts and things like that? Yeah so it's kind of um, a boundary thing there's a little bit of um you know, these are kind of liminal spirits. They're not either one thing or another. So they may have been um, near fairy forts and fairy buses because um, the superstition was so great about these places that the parents knew that they wouldn't be disturbed. Their babies wouldn't have been dug up or anything like that. And also um, in maybe times past, like, I mean, the kind of earliest Colleen's kind of date from around 1000 AD, but there are probably older ones that, you know, haven't really been explored. And in that time, they may have thought that um, the fairies had taken the babies or the the miscarriage um, fetuses yeah. and had given them maybe a second chance at life in the fairy realm. Um, of course, the big, the big thing with baptism, so obviously there was the church's official line is that you could not enter heaven unless you were baptised. And the official, the unofficial kind of belief was that if you didn't baptise your child, they were much more prone to be taken by the fairies. So there is that kind of, it's very, it's what very was, deep rooted. What was the thing as well about dusk? My mother was recalling the other week about little twin babies that were born next door to her. So they were born, they lived, but they were premature and they died. And she remembered her father coming in the next morning, warming himself by the fire because he'd gone out to bury the neighbour's babies at dawn. What was that about? So a kind of a practical explanation is that some of these cleans would have been located near um, consecrated official graveyards. And the belief was the closer that you got your baby to the consecrated ground, the nearer it would be to being buried in holy ground. Unfortunately, this wasn't church doctrine or policy, so that parents would go out late at night and actually try and bury the baby as close as they could to holy ground. So a part of it was that they wouldn't get caught. Um, another aspect of it is, again, that sort of um, liminal thing. They they weren't seen as fully 
um, sledge solved because I hadn't been baptised. So um, having kind of a day-life funeral wouldn't have been seen as acceptable in the sense of like maybe uh, an older child would have been buried and given a full mass, but you couldn't give these um, these babies full masses because they hadn't been baptised. And then finally, will you tell me a little bit about Limbo? Yeah, so Limbo, to be fair, Limbo was never an official church policy, but it was very widely widely believed in. So um, there were kind of these four realms outside of heaven in the church, um, in the belief. So there was like the Limbo of the patriarchs, which was the Limbo of like, we'll say... Um, Old Testament figures and stuff who died before, who were good, but had died before Jesus came. There was hell, there was purgatory, which, um, you know, apparently everyone goes through to atone for their sins. And then there was the limbo of the infants. So the limbo of the infants was where these babies could not actually enter the kingdom of God because they hadn't been baptized but they were too young and weren't capable of committing any sin besides original sin so they could never fully enter heaven but they were not in pain they were kind of in a blissful state that was just sort of full heaven um and the belief another belief would have been like saint augustine in the seventh century believed that these babies went to hell now, obviously, that's not a very comforting thought, so limbo was kind of a little bit more comforting. I suppose you could make the argument that, like, why would the church, like, or, you know, the belief not be that these these children that had obviously no chance to do anything in their lives not go straight to heaven? But you have to think that the church wanted baptisms. It needed, you know, mm. it couldn't let its authority slip. So unfortunately, that this yeah. this limbo belief was so common for so many years. Okay, Roisin Tuhi, thanks a million for that. Um, I know there are lots of old stories about things that were done, so thank you for coming on to tell us about them. And I feel a bit sorry now for my next guest, Father Michael Cusack, <laughs> Redemptor's Peace in Dundalk. Michael, I know a lot of what happened in the past in Ireland was driven by poverty and a lot of, um, you know, ancient superstitions and customs. But God, it was harsh, wasn't it? was indeed, Sarah. Good morning to you and good morning to your panel and listeners. Um, yeah, listening to Roshan, I'm glad she was the one who had to give that presentation before me <laughs> yeah. uh, and, and sort of hang my head almost in in, uh, in shame, but also maybe maybe in a little bit a little bit of, of um, happiness that I live in a different era, you know, and that my experience around the whole area of, of pastoral approach towards people who who are visited with with miscarriage and with loss and with grief in their lives is something much more sensitive and much more caring and in my belief much more in line with with the mercy for the mercy of God and the love of God which which really stands holding holding all all of the mystery of life as a sacred space and the loss of it even even more sacred. Now, you have a particular ministry in this area and you do particular is what there's a, a Saint Gerard Magella is that the the, the key figure? Yeah, yeah, so will you tell me about that and then why people come to you about him? Well, Saint Gerard Magella was the is the patron of parenthood and expectant uh, mothers. So here in in Dundalk, we have the national shrine at our church. Uh, Saint Gerard was an Italian um, of our congregation, a brother, and uh, really for the last um, seventy or eighty years here since um, the shrine was put in place here in Saint Joseph's, 
People have come from all of the surrounding counties uh, praying for fertility very often, uh, praying uh, through uh, miscarriages, praying for the gift of life. And, and we have, I mean, you would just have to to bow to the stories of the people and their belief in 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 the power of God working through the intercession of St. Jared and, and meet them. And you do you day. do something called a naming ceremony and you had an old man who came to you. Will you tell me about that, please? Mm-hmm. We're actually working at that at the moment. The Novena's on here at the moment and the naming ceremony and the remembrance for the baby's loss from the womb will be on next Sunday evening at the 23rd at 7pm. But the story about the man, yeah, every year we, we'll have this ceremony. Uh, we leave um, in the Shrine of St. Jared, we leave uh, uh, cards onto which we invite people to write down the names of those they want remembered. And we would be very sensitive to, you know, people's privacy. So you would say, you know, for many people, maybe they've had a really difficult journey with two and three um, losses in their life, a bit like Gina there in your studio. And we'd, like, for many people, they don't know the, 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 the sex of, of the child that's lost. And we encourage them just to put a favourite name on it uh, or, or a simple name, some, just just to somehow name uh, the reality of, of the loss that they're feeling. But last year at uh, that ceremony, I met a man coming out of the church about 70 years of age, and he had tears running down his face, and he said, you know, Father, he said, all of my life, he said, I knew that I had a little sister uh, who died at birth, and never, ever did we have her mentioned or a ceremony for her. And he said, I feel just feel so relieved and happy that I have been able to to sit in some space with other people and remember her passing. It's it's very um, comforting. It's very sad too, and it is really sacred space. I mean, I think in in a lot of these situations, it, silence is nearly the best response because the awkwardness of, of offering silly uh, um, or what can be can be heard as as hurtful uh, comment is very far from from helpful towards the one that carries, you know, the pain of that loss. So for him, it was a wonderfully healing experience. And you were asked to attend a stillbirth recently. I was indeed, yeah, a very good friend of mine, uh, two years back now, and uh, she was carrying her, her baby, was going to full term, and within a week of delivery, um, she was told that the, the child was dead in her womb, and she asked me to come to the, the hospital to be there with her husband and uh, herself when the baby was born and uh, I have to say again one of the most uh, difficult difficult days of my life but that I mean my my pain I'm sure pales into insignificance compared to theirs um, but they, they delivered a, a, their first baby boy and uh, and then we had the sadness of the burial but um, actually uh, I'll have to say the burial while it was it was just incredibly difficult to be there and tra- for me even to be strong to lead the the ceremony but that uh, that young couple uh, taught me more about about being resilient and about about love and staying together because even at, at the moment of the burial um the the young mother uh, the husband was just devastated and as, as the little uh, coffin was going into their grandmother's grave um she just beat her chest, pointing into her heart, and she said to the husband, look at, not down there, in here, you know, that the child would always be in their hearts, not not in some memory, you know, that's gone, gone into the ground. And thanks be to God that they've since um, had another 
um, son. Uh, so in their family, they remember four children. They have two girls. They have um, little uh, Robert who passed away and they have their, their um, new son at home as well. Well, we've come a long way. Father Michael Cusack, thanks for joining me this morning. Um, Anthony McCarthy, I know that's something we've talked about before, that in older days when it was expected that you'd lose children, if you asked a woman how many children she had, she could say eight, six lived. Yes. And that's a problem now, I think. I think people aren't as willing to understand or say how to answer that question. How many children have you got? Um, I'm sure actually it was always complicated yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and dependent on the mother. Yeah. But yes, yeah, cer- certainly it can be very difficult sometimes yeah. because sometimes they don't want to say it because then they'll be asked all these questions and they don't really want everybody. And on the other hand, not to say it feels disloyal and they feel they're being disloyal to the child. And so it can be very complicated. Do you think as a society that because um, medical care has improved so much and that we're not a poor country anymore, that there is an expectation that everything will be okay. That and particularly when pregnancies are so planned, you know, you get married and you get the house and you do it up and you decide at what point in your career is going to be a good time. And then when something goes wrong, we're just less prepared for it mm. because expectations are so high. Oh, absolutely. So much more than before. And an almost an arrogance that that that, that we have uh, as a society that um, and and sometimes, particularly those who maybe were, were who are better off and who are more successful and often more educated, uh, see the world as being that if they do all the right things because they've done all the right things in their careers and everything else, and if they do all the right things in pregnancy and do their maybe their pregnancy yoga and only eat organic food and all of these things, <laughs> they're going to have a natural birth, and because it's natural, everything is going to be fine because natural is good. And I mean, it's it's a recurrent theme because, you know, if you buy natural yogurt, it must be good. If you buy even natural jellies from the natural jelly company, they must be good for you. And because birth is going to be natural, if I do all the right things, natural is going to be good. And they've completely forgotten that nature is harsh as well. It's summer, it's winter, it's birth, it's death. It's beautiful, wonderful, gorgeous flowers and little babies. It's also death. It's tsunamis, earthquakes, dead babies, dead mothers. That's natural mm. and that's been forgotten Gina you said that oh at the start God. that you thought you were superwoman <laughs> I did yeah yeah but listening listening to what you were saying about you know if it's natural it's good it's like yeah that's there is this you know this message out there it's nuts I mean <laughs> and we, you're into alternative I'm things. totally into no, I'm, I'm all about natural health yeah. believe me I'm yeah. here with all my brochures everything but you know the point is that nature can be harsh and there is a balance in nature and we have to remember really at the end of the day that you know the great mother as we, we you know there is motherhood in all things you know and that there is balance and that there is that need to be able to to honour and respect that, you know. And mm. Jennifer, I suppose yeah. a lot of people sometimes might be given out about doctors and interfering and, you know, over medicalizing childbirth and all of that. Um, but you really do see the disasters, don't you? I mean, abs- yeah. I mean there is many, as um, Anthony says, you know, natural can be has good and bad sides to it. And as I mentioned, one in five pregnancies will end in a miscarriage. And the vast majority of those are genetic, you know, isolated, spontaneous genetic abnormalities that have occurred. 
heard that there's no one's fault. It's just a genetic imprint and there's nothing that can be done no matter how prepared you are for pregnancy. So I think it's very true that people have these huge expectations that once they're pregnant, particularly if they've had a very long journey to get there, that everything will be okay if they've done everything right. So I think it's very important to, you know, to get that message out there that even if everything has gone well, that it may not actually continue to a healthy and pregnancy. I think that comes as well with that thing about economic well-being mm-hmm. that we think we are in control and that the good things mm-hmm. in our life we have mm-hmm. made mm-hmm. because we have this, you know, good yeah. decision making and we mm-hmm. did the right things yeah. and it makes it harder then yeah. to bear those random things that can Absolutely. happen. Although, yeah. I mean, the need for control is very great and I mean, what's coming down the line is, you know, pre-implantation genetic testing. So therefore, that some of these genetic um, abnormalities looking... How do you feel family. about stuff like that? I mean, I, I suppose how I feel is different to what's actually happening out there. And I mean, there's a, a massive change occurring all around the world with all of the new genetic technologies that are available. Um, and indeed, that will have an impact on, on pregnancies in the future. Mm. And again, economically advantaged, people will have more access That's to that. That's a separate show on that. You wanted to make a comment just about limbo and yeah. what was done in the past. And yeah. also and about burial. And now what actually happens in terms of um, we were talking before about what people should do um, whenever they've had a miscarriage yeah. and that now in fact if they bring uh, bring whatever has miscarried into hospital or if it occurs in hospital the option is there for the hospital to arrange a separate bar- or a, a burial ceremony in the Holy Angels plot in Glasnevin which is a multi-faith plot um, oh, and that So even if it happens at home you can bring yeah, it in? exactly. Well that's yeah. really nice. Mm-hmm. Um, now Jean of course you're an osteopath mm. as well as having had the miscarriage yes, yourself and yeah. you think there is a, a clinical aid that the osteopathy can bring. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, Father Michael said it beautifully when he was saying, you know, the best recourse for people in these situations is silence. Oh, my goodness. To just be in silence with somebody who has gone through something as traumatic and as shocking as this can be incredibly healing. And I, there was a beautiful testimony written by a patient I had not so long ago, actually, that referred to the silence and how that was so good for her. So, you know, absolutely to consider this type of treatment. Now, you actually wrote something about your own experiences and the programme's coming to a close. So I'm going to mortify you now and (laughs) ask you, will you read um, your um, poem, please, about your experiences? Yeah, sure. I'd be very happy to. And this is for all mothers who have been through this and for the mothers who didn't get to hold their babies in their arms. Love and loss. The potency of a mother's tears, vast oceans, tears of every mother throughout the years. We cross that threshold once we know. Love and light, darkness and pain, guided towards the source of all. They say three's a charm. I wonder, is that so? Another loss, another letting go. Imploring, roaring in my head, please, God, no. Not again, it's too much to bear. I ask you, are you even there? And in that stillness, that empty void, I wait, desperate and alone inside. Then I hear her, a gentle whisper. Yes, my beloved, come rest with me. I am here, I am with thee, I feel you gentle stillness. I rest a while. I gather strength. 
in time my aching heart does mend and leaves that imprint upon my soul forever changed by what I know. In times of pain, there's love, light and hope. Life's journey's full. We heal, we grow. I take this with me as I move on. I am whole. I am woman. I am mother. I am strong. And that was Gina Whelan reading Love and Loss. And thanks to Anthony McCarthy, Jennifer Donnelly, Father Michael Cusack and Roisin Tuhi. That's it for today. Aidan McKelvey Research, Stephen Jordan produced, Marion Kennedy was on sound. And thank you for listening. Talking Point with Sarah Carey on News Talk 106 to 108.